Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. Today in the studio is the Honorable Jean Toll, who's the Chief Justice of South Carolina. And we're going to talk about the Otis Lecture Series and what it means. And specifically, her subject for this year's Otis Lecture is going to be Women in the Law. So, Your Honor, welcome to the Journal. Walter, delighted to be here as always. Let's talk a little bit about the Otis Lecture Series. The American Board of Trial Advocates has a very active chapter in South Carolina, and wonderfully this year, the president of the entire national organization is a South Carolinian, Joel Collins, who was a classmate of mine and of Chief Justice-elect Costa Placonis and my husband when we were all at the law school in the late 1960s. Joel, in fact, was with me recently for the celebration of the 800th anniversary of Magna Carta on the fields of Runnymede uh, near Windsor Castle in London. And ABODA, his organization, emphasizes the study of constitutional law, the rule of law, and the American jury trial system. So all those things come together in the annual James Otis lectures. And this year, I'm privileged to be the lecturer. The subject will be the development of women in the law under our United States Constitution and with some reference to South Carolina's Well, I would hope there would be some reference to South Carolina. Of course. But you, but you said you were there on the field at Runnymede. So I, let's talk a little bit about that. That must have been quite an experience. Oh, it was absolutely grand. Uh, this year's president of the American Bar Association is also a South Carolinian and a Colombian, William Hubbard. William had the good fortune to preside over the rededication of the American Bar Association's monument at Runnymede to Magna Carta. It's often said that perhaps the English do not embrace uh, the Magna Carta as strongly as we Americans do, because although the Magna Carta was first signed, one of a series of great charters in 1215 on the fields of Runnymede as King John had to accede to the wishes of the barons who forced him to recognize the rule of law, the freedom of London, and many other rights that they sought to wrest away from the monarchy, we really embraced it in the United States, beginning well before the Declaration of Independence. And and in South Carolina. Very much so. And Walter, one of the thrills of being there for this 800th anniversary celebration is that we had many events in the ends of court in London. And as you know, South Carolina lawyers were almost all trained in the ends of court. Uh, Later, in the ends of court are in lawyers' offices during colonial times and during the early days of uh, the birth of the nation. All four signers of the Declaration from South Carolina were trained in the oldest of the ends of court, Middle Temple. And one of the wonderful events was to see Middle Temple and to see the names of our four signers on the wall at the appropriate time in history when they learned law at the ends of court. During the colonial period, more young men from South Carolina were trained at the ends of court in the legal profession than all the other 12 colonies combined. Wow, I didn't know that piece of history, but you can see the uh, impact that our uh, beloved state has had on the development of the law from that very early time. And of course, one of the things that Uh, It became a very integral part of the beginnings of the legal system in South Carolina, again, from royalist and colonial times well before the Constitution, was the concept embraced in Magna Carta of the primacy of the rule of law over the rule of men or over the rule of one man and the rights of all citizens to be judged by their peers and to be taxed in accordance with the views of the citizens as a whole. Uh, So many things that we embrace as constitutional principles really derive from Magna Carta. And it was the knowledge of our lawyers, uh, many of whom uh, were declaration signers, about the rule of law, Magna Carta, and the beginning of the Declaration of Human Rights combined with the influence of Montesquieu, uh, Rousseau, et cetera, that, that led to the development of the United States Constitution and earlier our own lock-drafted Constitution, all with roots very firmly established on that field at Runnymede so long ago. And, of course, one of the great ironies in history that did not make the imperial officials very happy during the Stamp Act, there was a test case here in South Carolina, Jordan v. Law, 
where the court, the highest court in colonial South Carolina, ruled against the Stamp Act and closing of Charleston Harbor, saying the king's justice could not be delayed by any means. And that's a wonderful thing to bring up because people assume that the concept of judicial review and the authority of the third branch of government to, in essence, oversee the other two branches and actually rule as not enforceable a law that's been passed. Uh, Many think that developed from Marbury versus Madison, but we have cases such as the Jordan case and others 50 years plus before Marbury versus Madison or the Constitution itself was ever thought of, uh, where this idea of judicial review was first established. And of course, in your time on the court, whether it's Associate Justice or Chief Justice, the court has been in the position of doing judicial review. Any interesting cases you might want to bring up with that regard? Well, one that's still in the process of being completely played out in the political realm is the well-known Abbeville case. Mm -hmm. 20 years in the making, a case that challenges the current uh, funding of public school education in South Carolina. The Abbeville case, a suit by 13 small school districts challenging the equity of the funding situation as it now exists, and we ruled unconstitutional Mm -hmm. using our authority of judicial review. The present system of funding and the present system of composition of the school districts now, how that is remedied, what the exact remedy is, is really still under debate. We did not suggest a specific remedy, and interestingly, very recently, the parties have come to us and outlined a procedure they'd like to follow. Now, when you say the parties, that is both sides? Both sides have come mm-hmm. to us uh, to ask us to decide on a method of going forward, you might say, to, uh, to create a remedy. And, of course, there was one recent case in the last few years where the governor called the General Assembly back into session, and that was challenged, and she was ruled out of order. I guess that's her action was not in uh, agreement with the Constitution. Or that's, that's correct. She, she had not followed the appropriate constitutional procedure to call the session or to impose uh, a veto. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, we have oversight over the governor's actions just as we have oversight over legislative action a la the Abbeville case. Well, let's move into the really the basics of what you're going to be speaking to these young folks about. And by the way, for our listeners out there, there are young people from high schools around the state who come to Columbia, and the session is still held in the, the House chamber. And it's a competitive process to get here. And I think it's absolutely a wonderful thing to do. And by the way, ETV, we videotape that now, and it is telecast, and that is part of the constitutional educational requirement for our students to take constitutional history. So the Otis Lecture serves a dual purpose. You honor some bright young men and women, and then literally thousands of school children across the state can dial into ETV and pick up the lecture. Well, it is a great program, and I've participated several times in the various uh, events Mm -hmm. that surround the Otis Lecture and the coming to Columbia of these very fine students, and they are very bright and very informed. Well, let's talk about what you're going to say. I want to give them somewhat of a sense of history about the development of women's participation in the legal profession in the United States. And it really begins way before any official recognition of women's political status at all. It begins as far back as 1638. The first woman to practice law in the United States was Margaret Brent, She was a cousin of Lord Baltimore and came to Maryland with his entourage when the colony of Maryland was established. Uh, She practiced law not as an admitted lawyer, but was appointed by Lord Baltimore as his special counselor. Over eight years, she tried some 124 cases in the colony of Maryland at the time and apparently was quite educated and talented advocate Uh, so much so that people very respectfully called her Gentleman Margaret Brent. Uh, (laughs) Now the American Bar Association has a wonderful award that's given every year to five women of distinction in the practice of law in the United States, and it is named the Margaret Brent Award. But she was the first. You then flash forward to a much later period in time before 
women really began to be admitted, but there's some interesting things that happened along the way before women were actually admitted to practice uh, law in this country. In the late 1700s, Lucy Terry Prince addressed the United States Supreme Court. She was the first woman uh, to do that. She was an African-American woman who successfully defended a land claim in the United States Supreme Court. And before uh, Lucy Terry Prince, again in the late 1700s, Elizabeth Freeman, a slave, appeared before the Massachusetts Supreme Court uh, to argue for her freedom. She claimed that under that state's Bill of Rights, as a native-born American, she was free and equal, and the Massachusetts court was so impressed that they granted her the relief she sought, her freedom. So there's some wonderful stories from even colonial times about women's participation, but it wasn't until 1869 that the first woman, Belle Mansfield, became an admitted lawyer to practice. She was from Iowa, and she convinced the Iowa Supreme Court that the use of the male uh, pronoun describing uh, who could be admitted to practice law was universal and included her in that way. She was admitted, but not so lucky for a woman who was her contemporary, Myra Bradwell, who applied to Illinois to be a lawyer, was turned down, went to the United States Supreme Court, who also turned her down, finding that women were unsuited for the practice of law. But that gave way before it was all over. And by the late 1800s, a wonderful figure in American history, Belva Lockwood, uh, had become a lawyer and was the first woman to really argue in the federal courts in Washington and in the United States Supreme Court, a wonderful precursor because women didn't really become active in the practice of law in the United States until about 1918 when the American Bar Association admitted women when South Carolina admitted the first women to practice law. Well, I was just thinking when you're talking about the 1870s and and the status, really the non-status of women in the legal profession, that's when the medical profession finally began to open up some. I mean, there were women medical schools and women began to practice even here in South Carolina. But you mentioned the 1920s, and I, I know you're growing up with my dear Miss Neela, and you knew her grandmother. Very well. Who attended the law school at the University of South Carolina, graduated number one in her class, but then she never practiced, officially, because her husband said if she took fees, then that indicated to the world that he could not support, support, his, support his wife. Well, you know, a lot of interesting things took place during those times that affected women's ability to rise uh, above uh, or beyond the contemporary view of women's place in society. For example, there were Married Women's Property Acts for a good long time that essentially advocated the principle that in the law, the husband and wife are one, and that one is the husband. So women could not enforce their own contracts or even make separate contracts. And of course, a contract is the foundation of the relationship between the attorney and the client. So if women cannot form contracts, then that is an enormous impediment to their ability to practice law. As you move forward into the 20s, when the very significant historical uh, matter finally occurs, which is allowing of women the right to vote, that, that changes everything. That changes the dynamic. Now, two years before the 19th Amendment to the Constitution was ratified, uh, the first woman was admitted to practice law. Some women had been practicing beforehand, just as women had been doing business uh, in kind of uh, indirectly uh, permitted ways. But James Y. Perry, uh, Miss Jim Perry, was the first woman admitted to practice in South Carolina. She had studied in California because women were not admitted to South Carolina's law school. She then came back here. She was from Greenville. She uh, was admitted to practice there in California and became, when the law was passed in 1918, that allowed women to practice. She became the first woman to practice. Shortly thereafter, the second was the woman that really started the crusade to allow women to be admitted to South Carolina's law school and to be admitted to practice, Claudia Sullivan. So they were the first two. And Things kind of moved at a very slow pace uh, through the 30s, but the big thing that impacted more women coming into the profession was World War II. 
where so many men were in active service that many women began to come into the South Carolina Law School and from that group uh, was a kind of beachhead of uh, new women to practice. And that accelerated some in the 50s, but it really wasn't until the early 70s that you saw any appreciable uh, increase in women. When I graduated from law school, there were 40 women licensed, less than 1% of the licensed lawyers in the state, and only 10 in active practice. I'm sure it's apocryphal, but I, I believe when Miss Helen Hennig went to law school that Dean Figg wanted to know why this beautiful young woman wanted to basically disrupt his law school. <laughs> <laughs> and Bob Figg was a wonderful character, but I, could, I don't have his, his phrasing exactly right, but I can remember her discuss, you know, mentioning that, and she said she wanted to practice law. Well, it certainly wasn't an encouraging place. Uh, even into the late 60s, but I can tell you that there were a few really bright spots, and one of them was the firm Ms. Perry uh, became associated with. She partnered with Harry Hainsworth to begin the Hainsworth Law Firm in Greenville, and when I graduated, that is the firm I went to, and it had a woman a partner. Ms. Perry had recently passed away, but Jean Galloway Bissell, who later, she was Jean Galloway at the time, later became the first woman to be a federal court judge from South Carolina. Jean uh, was really one that mentored me and gave me encouragement, though she was not a trial lawyer at all. She wasn't a litigator. She was a transactional and uh, a state lawyer, but she encouraged me to dream big. Uh, two things gave me a break to start being a trial lawyer. I was originally doing transactional work, but women became admitted to uh, the juries in South Carolina about six months after I got into the practice of law. So when I first was in, I could try a case to a jury, but I couldn't sit on one. But when women became uh, able to serve on jurors, an interesting thing happened. A lot of them did not have the exemptions, most of which were related to the job you had, and most of us didn't have those kind of jobs that gave you a preferred exemption from jury service. So we served. And I was second chair in a trial with a colleague of mine at the Hainsworth firm, just a little older than I was. And it just turned out that the jury was all women. And the forelady of the jury was actually a client of Hainsworth and someone for whom I had drawn a will. She was the wife of the president of Alice Mills. And no one thought to ask whether any of those jurors had any association with me. I was kind of a non-entity. So I sat there and the case tried along. Of course, I was not permitted to do any of the examination. In fact, the, to begin with, the lawyer didn't want me to sit at the table and Judge Spruill, who was the trial judge, said, oh no, uh, Mrs. Tove needs to sit at the table. She's co-counsel. The case was about a uh, woman who had bought a platform rocker and it collapsed under her and she brought a suit about that against the manufacturer. The argument my colleague made to the jury was essentially that this woman was too fat to have bought that platform rocker. Now, sitting on the jury was the for lady of the jury who was a very amply uh, endowed... Very Rubenesque. Very Rubenesque. And those women didn't crack a smile at that argument, but they went back out to the jury room and very quickly returned a very fulsome verdict for the plaintiff. So then they sent a note to the judge and said, why was not the little lady lawyer allowed to speak with us? Apparently, Judge Spruill called the senior partner in my law firm to tell him what had happened and what kind of argument had been made and said, you know, you need to let Gene start doing some trial work. And that was my break to begin to do trial work. And you had no regrets from leaving, leaving contracts and... <laughs> None whatsoever. <laughs> And then you moved back to Columbia. I did. Uh, my bill clerked for Judge Clement Hainsworth. In fact, during the time he was uh, nominated uh, but not confirmed for the United States Supreme Court. Uh, sad moment in the country's history, I must say. But uh, we had a wonderful time under Judge Hainsworth's great influence. And then Bill came back to Columbia to teach at the law school. So I came back and went into partnership at the Belsa Law Firm. All right. And then you entered politics. I did. Uh, you know, it's an interesting thing, Walter. When my class uh, went through law school, I graduated in 1968. Vietnam War was at its height. We were pretty serious as a group about 
South Carolina and what we wanted to mean to South Carolina. We talked very openly about who would enter politics, who would manage campaigns, what role we would take in South Carolina's government, very seriously as only young people can do. But we followed through on that, and one of the things the group identified was they said, Gene, you need to think about running for the House of Representatives, and ultimately I did. Now, was that still in the day of countywide elections, or was it? Did, were you, did you run for a specific district? I ran, a, uh, I filed at large, but 1974 was the year that single-member districts were finally required by the United States courts for South Carolina to go to a single-member district uh, method of electing House members. So uh, I filed at large, then a district was drawn, and I was put against the chairman of the House delegation, a very popular former principal of Columbia High School from Columbia. And that was the luck of the draw for uh, a young, just-filed person. That district was drawn so that I would have to take on uh, this very popular representative. And I did it by going door-to-door throughout the whole district all that summer long. And he did not campaign much. Uh, And so I guess it was just some good old hard shoe leather that gave me the victory. But when I came, there were 52 new members that year, just uh, out of 120 members. Wow. So uh, we young members had a very inordinate influence on things early on. I formed a freshman caucus, chaired the first freshman caucus, and we were off and running as a group of very disparate people, Republicans, Democrats, women, uh, African Americans, all kinds of different people. Well, who were some of the members of that great freshman class in the General Assembly? Uh, well, John Land, John Matthews is the only member of the ca- class that still serves. Nancy Stevenson, later the lieutenant governor of South Carolina, were among those in that first class. Uh, John Hamilton Smith, Tommy Houston, two very accomplished judges, were also in that class. Uh, I.S. Levy Johnson was in that class. Herb Fielding. Uh, Uh, A wonderful cross-section of South Carolinians was in that uh, first class. Were y'all really young Turks? We sure were, uh, but interestingly, not because we were necessarily together on everything political. There were very conservative members of uh, uh, that first class. John Bradley from Charleston opposed me all the time about the Equal Rights Amendment, (laughs) which I very steadfastly uh, advocated for. But... We wanted to make a difference, and we wanted a more modern government, and we really were united about that. So new ethics laws, the reform of the Public Service Commission, the reform of the process for screening judges, were uh, home rule, were some of the things that got on our plate very early on, and we made a lot of difference in renewing those conversations. Dick Riley, uh, Brantley Harvey, John West had begun those conversations, but we really brought those matters up to the front burner. And then when, uh, and Jim Edwards, a kind of accidental governor, was a reformer. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he helped a lot. And then when Dick Riley succeeded him, there were some golden years then where much reform of the structure of government in South Carolina was initiated. Well, you, you mentioned those two governors back to back. And of course, under Jim Edwards, it, it began in the House, but the, you worked with him for the Educational Finance Act, which actually made possible the Education Improvement Act, and, and that, of course, is playing into the lawsuit, the financing. But Governor Edwards realized early on that some of these poor counties simply could not, did not have the money to educate. No matter how, like Allendale, no matter how high they, hard they taxed everybody, it still wasn't enough. And he wanted to make sure that in the 1970s that everybody at least got some chance, a good chance of, of an education. He did, and he did two very smart things in advocating for the Education Finance Act. The first was he said a lot of these smaller counties, they are dominated by the big landowners. They don't want fair valuation of the land from which the property taxes come. And therefore, the poor counties are really at a disadvantage because the property is not properly evaluated or taxed. He advocated for reform of that. And then the next thing he advocated was fair finance. Uh, financing according to your uh, index of taxpaying ability. So a county would have to step up and perform according to what they could tax based on fair valuation. But they also got state supplements that recognized that some counties do not have the value they need to provide an equal education. Over time, Mm -hmm. 
that concept has been tremendously eroded, and that's what the Abbeville suit became all about. All right. Yana, we need to pause for a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal, and I'm talking with the Honorable Gene Toll, Chief Justice of the state of South Carolina. All right, you're in the legislature. All of a sudden, you get elected to the court. It was, but you tried, you tried several times. Well, it, it's very interesting the way judicial elections have progressed, but during the time in the 70s when uh, I first thought about uh, judicial service, the conventional way would have been to run for a circuit court judgeship. And we went through a period of time in the late 70s where we uh, increased the number of judges from the 16 circuit judges that had been there for so long to a larger number and unified the court system without the hodgepodge of county courts. So you had a family court system created and an expanded circuit court, and there were opportunities there for service as a trial court judge. I was a young lawyer with a very active practice. I didn't want to go on circuit and be away from my very uh, young family at that time. And of course, in Columbia, serving from Columbia in the legislature, I didn't have to travel. Uh, so I, a lot of people encouraged me, Gene, you ought to think about a judgeship. The barrier needs to break. A woman needs to be a judge in South Carolina. There were none. And I thought about that for a long time. I thought about the federal bench because I was one of the three chairs for Jimmy Carter, when he was elected president, I was one of the three South Carolina chairs and was offered a look at a federal judgeship. But I decided pretty early on that I loved appellate work, I did a lot of it, and that at the pr appropriate time, I would put my name forward for the South Carolina Supreme Court. At that time, the concept was if you want to serve on that court with only five members, you have to put forth your name several times and not win start expressing interest, and then ultimately your time will come. And so I knocked on the door three times before my time came, and even then it was a very hotly contested election uh, to be the first. But we had a wonderful series of firsts because I withdrew the second time I ran in favor of Justice Ernest Finney, who became the first African-American since Reconstruction time since Jonathan Jasper Wright to serve on the South Carolina Supreme Court. He ultimately became chief. I followed him on the court, and I followed him as chief. So wonderful parallel careers of diversity on our court. Well, let's talk about, we're talking about women in the law and the opening up of opportunities for women to be judges in South Carolina. Yes, when I came to service in the General Assembly, and as you know, South Carolina is one of the two states that still has judicial election by members of the General Assembly and Joint Assembly. It used to be the way all state court judges in the 13 colonies uh, or in the 13 original states were elected, and South Carolina still retains that approach. No women. Uh, the first woman to be elected was a family court judge. She's still serving, uh, Judy Bridges from Charleston. But the first woman on the circuit court was uh, elected the same day I was elected, and that's Carol Connor mm -hmm. from Kingstree, from a great family of lawyers. Uh, so we were just in the initial stages of women serving on the judiciary, uh, certainly when I came along, and women in the profession in general. Now women comprise uh, about 38% of the lawyers in South Carolina, and it's changing so dramatically because women comprise about 47% of the students at the law schools in South Carolina, that parity is being achieved very rapidly now, as it is in the judiciary, where we now have a strong contingent of women serving as judges. I don't think we mentioned the year you were elected. I, I was first elected in the year 1988. Okay. And, the, and, the, and the change has been very rapid since the late 80s, I might say, in terms of both women and other minorities serving, including uh, African-American judges who are now much more of a factor on our bench. Of course, I believe in terms of population, women are the majority in South Carolina, are they? Yes. And you mentioned in law school, 47%. At the University of South Carolina, majority of the students are women at the undergraduate and the, the graduate level. Women have come a long way. And, and actually, as you've mentioned, in a very short time. Exactly. When you think of the sweep of history, wow, what a difference has been made since the early 1900s. So in less than 100 years, 
women have gone from not really being a presence in the legal profession uh, to having so much opportunity, so much so, that it's interesting when I lecture to groups in the legal profession, and particularly to younger lawyers, both men and women, they have no idea of this history, Walter. They think the way we are now is the way it's always been. But there's an enormous change that's been made in the admission of women to the practice law. But one place where women have not advanced much in South Carolina is in the General Assembly. And it's been a really up-down thing, but never much advancement. And I don't really understand completely how that is. There was a high point when I served when there were about 18 or 19 women in the House of Representatives, none in the Senate, of course. And we've really kind of had a roller coaster, but the Senate only has one woman serving at the present time. And the House, about uh, that high watermark that was achieved 27 years ago when I still served, I don't know why that is. I certainly think that it is much more difficult for younger women to serve because family responsibilities are still very impactful on women, although shared responsibility for child rearing is much more uh, the norm now uh, in modern young families. But it's still a big sacrifice for any young person to come from afar and serve for six months here and sacrifice their family life and their business and everything to serve in the legislature. It's not a very friendly place for younger people. So it's for younger people, period, regardless of gender. That's right. That's right. But, you know, that's sometimes a question I will be asked by national media is, I think next to Utah we have the lowest percentage of women serving not necessarily in public life, but in, in, the, in the legislature. Yes, the figures are very different when you get to county councils, city councils, uh, school boards, and other elective positions across the state. The figures are very, very radically different. And I wonder sometimes whether some of that relates to the very lengthy sessions that we still have in South Carolina and the kind of uh, process that we uh, go through where there's such a lull and real marching towards purposeful activity until right at the end of the session many times. And I, I don't say that by way of criticism, but I do know that when I served in the General Assembly, the first year it went till October. And a group, I, my group of young members went to the Speaker of the House and said, we're resigning en masse. We can't afford to serve. Uh, we don't have these retainers from big corporations as some of the senators do. And we have families and everything else. We can't make this a full-time uh, job. We need some reform like that again to make it a much more reasonable length of time that the General Assembly is actually in session. And I think that is done in some places. And some legislatures only meet every other year. The biennial service or the short term and the long term as North Carolina has it where they have a very short term on an odd year and a more lengthy term in even years. All of those are reforms we ought to think about. Well, Your Honor, you talked about government reform that happened the way the House was operating in things like local government and what have you. But the judiciary system, it took a while, but it has it has also changed, and particularly in the last 20 years. Very dramatically, Walter. Of course, judicial reform uh, began in the early 70s, uh, very much the product of the vision of people like Dick Riley, who was then a member of the Senate, Chief Justice Woodrow Lewis, uh, who was probably the first uh, real reform-minded chief we had. The idea was to try to make the court more independent of the General Assembly. That's a theme that runs throughout uh, South Carolina's history, where the General Assembly is very dominant. As Cash said in his famous book about Southern politics, we are the quintessential legislative state or parliamentary state. But change was afoot in the 70s to make the judiciary more of a true independent third branch of government. Judicial reform in the 70s, the creation of a unified court system. The unified court system, I don't think people understand what a hodgepodge of courts we used to have in South Carolina. Well, what we used to have, we had 16 circuit court judges and five members of the Supreme Court, and that was it for the statewide system. But there was much more business that had to be done, family matters, all kinds of um, uh, litigation involving everything from automobile accidents to contract issues to landlord-tenant matters, you name it, that could not be handled by the magistrate's court system but had to have a court with more authority. And 
what was created was a hodgepodge system of county courts under the domination of the legislative delegation created by local acts, not really participated in anybody but the delegation of the county involved, the most infamous, or famous or infamous of which was a county court in Darlington, South Carolina, where J.P. Mazingo, a senator and one of the leading plaintiff lawyers in the state and in the country at that time, had a circuit court judge, Woodrow Lewis, with whom he did not agree about things. So he created his own county court and created and had someone that uh, he felt was more sympathetic to his point of view, named as the judge, and gave it a jurisdiction of $12,000, which was an enormous amount of money in the 60s when this court was created. Well, there were counties all over that began to create these little kind of uh, uh, local courts, so to speak, very much under the influence of legislators. That was what judicial reform was intended to uh, get rid of is the kind of home cooking local courts and have a standardized statewide court that was run not in the pocket of the bar of the local county with home cooking if anybody else came in, but truly a fair system standardized so that uh, the same rules would apply in Hampton County that applied in Richland County no matter where you were from when you brought your lawsuit. Well, that had become accelerated during the 70s and the 80s. And when I got to the Supreme Court, we had much more of a unified system with a broader spectrum of judges and a much more statewide focus. We began to modernize our rules of court to more accord with the way the federal courts managed by way of standardized rules of evidence and procedural rules. But we had a very horse and buggy court from the standpoint of how dockets were managed, all on paper and file cards and big old... This is in the 80s still, on. Yes, and big old leather-bound volumes with all the records of court not very accessible to anyone. Uh, so when I became chief, I realized that the finances of the state were probably not going to permit a big increase in the number of judges to handle what was an enormous backlog in both civil and criminal court in trial court. Could you give us an idea of how large that backlog was? Oh gosh, uh, cases sometimes languishing on the criminal and civil docket for five years, six years, sometimes ten-year-old cases on the dockets not tried. So much for a speedy trial. So much for speedy trial indeed. And the old adage, justice delayed is justice denied, was just uh, so apparent then. So then the question became, how do we re engineer the way we manage our book of business. And obviously, automation was one thing that needed to be done, but there was no money for that. These big mainframe computer systems that is the way paper was translated into a more manageable group of material were enormously expensive, and the licenses to keep them running out of the range of any thought that the judiciary could afford it. And a lot of these things funded locally by counties mm -hmm. through their clerks of court. So how do we deal with this? I went to see Fritz Hollings, who was still in the Senate, and to Senator Thurman. And I made the pitch that we needed to automate. We had no money. But there was a new way of managing material on an automated basis called the Internet. And I wanted to be able to experiment with that as a platform for managing court business. And my concept was if we could be a pilot for the United States in terms of how a small and rural state could change the way it manages its courts business by automating on the Internet, we might really create something. And Senator Holland said, I'll agree to do that, but you've got to tell me what you're going to do for rural South Carolina. Don't you start a system that's just going to automate the big towns and the big cities, the Charlestons, the Richlands, the Greenbulls. So I started my system in the most rural areas of the state, not by automating the big circuit courts in the county seats, but by automating magistrates' courts in the smallest communities in the state. Like Hampton and Allendale. And, and uh, out in the county, too. Those magistrates' courts of court are just out in the most rural areas there are. And when I started that idea, I hired a, a firm to do an evaluation of how this could be done and began, as you know, the Internet is platformed, was at that time, basically on telephone lines or cable lines. 
And so how are you going to get that kind of service to these rural areas that don't have any kind of Internet service or dial-up if they've got it at all, nothing quick enough to manage court records? Mm -hmm. And we started in very rural areas, and my little staff wired some of the most out of the mainstream places you can think of. We talked to rural telephone companies and cable companies, but... The bottom line was we created a system all over South Carolina of high-speed connectivity, and on that platform, we then created the software that now manages cases in every county in South Carolina on an Internet basis. And, Walter, the bottom line is this. People come from California and Massachusetts, some of the largest jurisdictions in the country, to see how South Carolina created this Internet system of managing court business. Uh, no other state did what we did to really reach out to everybody and automate. Well, and I have seen this in court, in fact, in the Abbeville case. On the witness stand, documents being pulled up so that the judge could read them when the reference was made to something very specific or when I, as a witness, was handed something, didn't have to hand the judge a paper copy. He could just pull it up. I know, and well, we really, that was a laboratory, the trial of the Abbeville case in a small county, Clarendon County, but with great clerk of court, Beulah Roberts, who was willing to experiment with us. We trained the court reporter to do digital recording rather than the old uh, shorthand or mask method of taking a record. She produced a online record every day, daily transcripts of the proceedings in that case, and we put all of the documents online so that uh, rather than having these huge banker's boxes to the ceiling of all the documents in Abbeville, hundreds of thousands of documents, we put it all online, and that's why the case could be tried in the way you uh, verify. Well, the documents, didn't they break the elevator in the courthouse trying to get (laughs) the documents to the court? Because the courtroom was on the second floor. That's right. And they initially brought those documents in and all those bankers' boxes broke the elevator. And we finally decided, hey, there's got to be a better way to do this. And that's when we developed the notion that we would put all those documents online. And attorneys and clients, you know, officials in different counties, you know, they don't have to drive to Myrtle Beach to check on something, they can do it. Exactly. Each each clerk of court now has a website. We developed a lot of the first ones, and many of them take them to great heights. Charleston has a website that's unbelievable. It's so uh, sophisticated. Uh, their clerk, Julie Armstrong, is just one of the leaders in that. But each county, small or large, has a website, and you can go through that web portal and access Uh, the dockets, the public index, and in many cases the documents themselves. The the crowning achievement will be electronic filing, and I'm debuting that in Clarendon and in Greenville, a small county and a large county, hopefully by the end of the summer. By electronic filing, please explain for our folks out there. Well, instead of a lawyer having to serve a paper pleading and then go to the courthouse and file that paper pleading with a clerk of court, the lawyer will be able to use online web-based filing to file that document electronically. The federal courts already have had for some years a system of online filing, and some states have online filing. We are now developing an online filing system for South Carolina, and it will be an enormous benefit to uh, certainly the litigants. It'll be a a money saver for sure, but it will also let all South Carolinians begin to see the court's business online, and that's just as important to me as the convenience of filing is. Okay, so one of the entertainments in South Carolina used to be go to the courthouse for the trial, but now, for example, in the Abbeville case, they could have just gone online digitally and looked at the testimony for the day? And uh, they, they could have in some parts of Abbeville, depending on whether they video streamed it. But now there's a good deal of video streaming going in our Supreme Court. Uh, I have had since last September, in partnership with Educational Television, video streaming of all of our arguments and their archives. So if you're curious about what was said in a particular argument, Uh, You don't have to come to Columbia and get a little audio tape. You can go online through our site, our Judicial Department site, and all of the arguments are archived there for you to look at. 
that's tremendous. And, and I know you, you had talked earlier about the, the documents and the case in the courthouses and the, the, all of the books. And, for example, now in Richland County, if you wanted to look up a deed, they're all online. They're all online. Exactly. And, of course, one of the other things, it's public access is a huge dimension of it, of course. But the other thing is that it's a marvelous educational tool. We have had a program for several years at the Supreme Court that uh, my chief staff attorney and I instituted of bringing students to Columbia to watch oral arguments, but beforehand to supply them with the briefs and documents in the case. So they study the case. They then come to Columbia and listen to the oral argument. And then they actually interact with the court and ask questions. It's quite a great educational tool. Well, now we've gone to the next step. We're streaming those oral arguments, and those teachers can use those oral arguments in their classroom as a aid to discussing a particular case or a particular constitutional principle, whether it's a criminal law matter or a civil matter, and uh, that has been enormously embraced by the education community. Well, I'm thinking about where we started. You mentioned that you had been uh, in England for the 800th anniversary of the Magna Carta at Runnymede, and of course, part of that document was the king's justice cannot be delayed for any reason. And in essence, the reforms you're talking about 800 years later are making those ideals of the Magna Carta a reality. Very true. Uh, it shows you that some things are timeless and enduring and new again all at the same time. And those values from the Magna Carta have had the same rocky road that a democracy has, but those values are enduring. Your Honor, you're going to retire in December. What challenges do you see ahead for the third branch of government in South Carolina in the 21st century? We have to adjust the way we resolve disputes to accommodate the great variety of disputes that come before the court in this day and age. Family court has exploded in the 45-plus years I've been in the practice of law. And some matters in family court are not well resolved by the conventional adversary process of uh, filing a suit against someone and having a cross-examination and so forth. These are matters of custody, of visitation, uh, and even of property distribution that are overlaid with tremendous emotion. And sometimes the best way to resolve those matters is by mediation or by some other approach than simply the clash of adversaries in the courtroom. Uh, We're moving towards different ways of dispute resolution. We sometimes have very sophisticated disputes that involve business to business or involve construction litigation that involves, uh, you know, 50 different parties to the litigation. How do we manage those more sophisticated disputes in a way that does justice, that allows all to be heard, but doesn't take forever to resolve? So we're having to come up with new tools and new ways. Is that the court's system has to do that, or does the General Assembly have to pass laws to deal with that? It's a combination. What has happened so far uh, since I've been chief is I've experimented with using the authority of the chief to create different kinds of dockets and different ways of mediating and resolving disputes. But the General Assembly badly needs to become involved, and particularly on the criminal side. There has now developed a whole panoply of what are called therapeutic courts, like drug courts, like criminal domestic violence courts. And they use the term court, but they're really a way of diverting people from the criminal justice system to see whether some treatment can help them with the issues that really underline and underlay whatever the offense is. Uh, because often you take people who are mentally ill or who are addicted, you put them through the legal system, you warehouse them, they get no treatment, they come back and they repeat the same offense over and over again. Therapeutic courts are a means of diverting someone from immediate prosecution, putting them through a treatment program, and if they successfully complete it, mm -hmm. then they get a break on the criminal part of the equation in terms of how the courts resolve the dispute. And actually, we taxpayers then get a break because we don't 
pay for how much now in South Carolina? Thirty-five thousand or sixty thousand dollars a year for sixty thousand dollars a year to incarcerate. And you know, the General Assembly has made some moves in that area with sentencing reform in the last five years, recognizing this diversion from prosecution for certain nonviolent crimes that really involve an underlying issue. So much so that when sentencing reform was done uh, within the last uh, five or six years in the legislature, our penitentiary population has gone down 25% through better use of diversion programs for nonviolent crimes, but our percentage of violent offenders has gone up, which is just exactly what you wanted to happen, which is those who need to be away from society are being uh, incarcerated, but we're trying to take those who are nonviolent offenders and really have other issues at play and trying to see if there's another way besides simply warehousing them at $60,000 a year to try to resolve their issues. Your Honor, we're about to run out of time. Any last words you'd like to have for our listeners before we sign off today? Particularly for your younger listeners, there's so much opportunity in the legal profession that was not really available when I entered And it can be used in so many different ways, not just in the conventional practice of law, but in business, in law enforcement, in teaching, in many other pursuits of life, that I think my career stands for the proposition that the legal profession in South Carolina is alive and well, and an environment that welcomes a lot of different uses of the talents that are gained when you uh, study the law. Well, Your Honor, the Honorable Jean Hayford Toll, Chief Justice of the State of South Carolina, thanks so much for being with us today on The Journal. Thank you for having me, Walter. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. It was great having Chief Justice Jean Toll in the studio again, and we covered a range of topics from the Magna Carta's 800th anniversary to colonial South Carolina law to the role of women and particularly the advances that women have made in the practice of law and in the judiciary in the last 50 years. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.